Good morning, Church. Moving on, on. And a special extended warming morning to those online. There should be a lot more of you online than there is here this morning. So enjoy your comfortable positions and the fact that you can probably have your mask off. But we would uh, all look forward to being able to have fellowship again together very soon. This morning's reading, and it's a privilege to read it, uh, comes from the book of Second Samuel. And we're reading from chap- in chapter 7 and we're reading the first 17 verses. So Second Samuel, for those who are looking, that comes just after First Samuel. And before that comes Ruth, but you'll probably miss that. There's only a few chapters there. So if you find Kings, just head a little bit back towards Genesis and uh, you should come across Second Samuel. So that should give you enough time now to have found that. So Second Samuel, and we're reading chapter 7 and the first 17 verses uh, titled God's Promise to David. Verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all of your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a a place for my people Israel. And will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them any more as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands, But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, who I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. 
May God bless his word and expand it to us this morning. If you have your Bibles open, it would be great to keep it at 2 Samuel 7 as we work through today's passage. Well, good morning. It's good to be here. Uh, it's a bit of a strange conditions again. Uh, I see that almost every church has been affected by COVID somehow. Uh, but nevertheless, it's good to gather as God's people to uh, listen and to hear his word uh, and his spirit working in our lives so that we can be more like Jesus. Uh, it's great to be here this morning. Uh, thanks for your prayers for Hertford Street uh, Baptist Church. Uh, also send greetings on behalf of them. Uh, I think they're starting their service in five minutes' time, and we'll see what kind of roll-up we get at Hertford Street too. Um, thanks for praying for my health. It's been a pretty rough uh, eight to ten months. Uh, most of you guys, I think, know about that. I was in hospital with uh, high blood pressure uh, in late April last year, and that kind of started a lot of ups and downs. Uh, currently, uh, I'm waiting for a bunch of tests that were done uh, just before the borders open. Uh, I was in hospital for about six days uh, to do some uh, tests, and they should be back in about a week or two's time, and that should give uh, more clarity into what's happening and what's the primary cause behind uh, the blood pressure rising. So appreciate your prayers about that. How about we pray as we come to God's word? Father God, uh, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are the just God, you are the creator God, yet you are also the gracious, good, and loving God, who in your love sent your son Jesus to die for our sins, to rise again in uh, victorious over death, and that you call us to follow him, to grow more and more like him. Lord, thank you for your word that speaks to us powerfully uh, today. We pray that you would be working in our hearts and minds. Convict us of your things. Help us to live for you today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you think for a moment about our famous, popular, or favorite passages uh, of the Bible, what comes to mind for you? Maybe it's that song we sung before, John 3.16, For God So Loved the World. Maybe it's Psalm 23, The Lord is My Shepherd. Isaiah 53, The Suffering Servant. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Matthew 11, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Maybe it's Proverbs 3, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Romans 8, Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Or maybe it's right at the end, Revelation 22, come Jesus, come. Well, this morning, uh, it might not make your list yet, but today's passage to Samuel 7, it really should make your list of famous passages. It's one of the most important passages in the Bible. It's one of the key chapters in understanding God's word and God's work of salvation. Our former principal of Moore College in Sydney, uh, John Woodhouse, he says, These, uh, there are few chapters more important and more exciting than 2 Samuel 7. He goes even further to say that these are one of the most important words spoken 
in world history. Pastor in the States, Elsa Begg, he says, this passage unlocks the entire story of the Bible. Pretty important, huh? And scholar Don Carson, in his summary of the Bible, he selects 2 Samuel 7 in one of his 14 key passages to focus on in his overview of the whole Bible. I'm part of a group uh, that leads a training conference called uh, Ignite Training Conference that's happening this week, incidentally. Uh, I used to lead a strand group, that's a week-long workshop, uh, looking at the Old Testament and how it all points to Jesus together. And 2 Samuel 7 is one of the key passages that we focused on in understanding the Bible as a whole and how it centers on Jesus and his work of salvation. So we're going to look at 2 Samuel 7 today. We're going to see how it shows us the coming of Jesus as the coming of God's one, God's promised king, what we've just celebrated a month ago at Christmas. And as we learn from God's word this morning, our goals today are to deepen our understanding and our appreciation for the coming of Jesus, and also to deepen our appreciation at of God's word as a whole, scripture as a whole, the holy word as a whole, as it points to God's son, Jesus. Well, as we get started, just to give you a sense of where 2 Samuel 7 uh, sits, it's about a thousand years before the time of Jesus. Uh, Israel, God's people, they're in the promised land. They've asked for a king. They got a dud king in Saul. David, he's risen up to be God's chosen king. Uh, Saul and David, they wore it out at the end of 1 Samuel. Then David, he wars it out with the neighboring nations. And then we reach 2 Samuel 7. David's the king. The wars are over. There's peace. There's no threats around them. They've captured Jerusalem, made it the capital. They've brought the Ark of the Covenant there. And David's built his palace about two chapters ago. And we see this. In verse 1, I'm reading from the ESV. He says, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Here David's referred to as the king. He's God's one, God's man, God's chosen one. He's been enthroned and anointed. And he looks at his palace, his house, this mansion made of the best timber and the most expensive stone. And then he looks at the ark, the dwelling place of God in this fabric tent made of goat skin. And David, he looks at those and he thinks, this, this isn't right. This doesn't speak well of God. So he points this out to Nathan the prophet, and it's implied in his comment here that David, he wants to do something. He wants to right this wrong. He wants to build a temple, a house for the ark, a house for God. And then Nathan, he speaks his mind, the prophet, uh, but he speaks here his personal opinion. He doesn't say, thus says the Lord. He says, it sounds like, a good idea. Nothing wrong from my point of view. And he says in verse 3, And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And before we keep going in this passage, the word house uh, in this chapter, 
is going to be a key word as we move forward. It's used here, the same word to use for three different meanings. House is in a palace or home, house is in a temple, and house as in people, a family, a dynasty in the sense of descendants on the throne. Well, I wonder if you remember a time uh, when you had good intentions of doing something, but you got things completely wrong. Uh, when my wife now, Angela, and when I first started going out, uh, I was surprising her uh, by baking brownies and chocolate souffles for her. Angela loves chocolates, if you know her. I know that's a very sweet thing to do, especially for a guy. But now looking back, I know that Angela uh, gets migraines from chocolates. So the intention I had was good back then, but it probably wasn't the best thing to do. And likewise here, David, he had good intentions. But as we come to God's response in verse 4 onwards, spoken through the, Na the prophet Nathan, we're going to see that while he had good intentions, something was wrong with this request. And there's three sections here in God's reply. The first is that God rejects David's request. Verse 4 to 7. But on the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? That's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer to that is no, while reminding David that even though he's king, God addresses him as my servant. He's God's servant. And God gives two reasons why this isn't a good idea. The first is in verse 6. I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. God's never dwelt in a permanent house up to this time. And the second and more important reason is in verse 7. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? You see, while the idea of a house, a temple for God is well and good, God's never asked for it. He's never commanded it. He's never instructed his people or his servants to do it. In fact, David here, he's probably taking his cue from other nations around him, other ancient Near East superpowers at the time. Uh, these superpowers, these other nations, these pagan uh, nations, they would conquer a land. They'll see this conquering as a previous favor from a little g god. And once these nations are in the land, they would build a temple to pay homage, to worship or to respect their little g god. And by doing this, building this temple, uh, these neighboring nations, they thought that they would receive future favor from their little G God as a result of building uh, this temple. You see, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, they all had this sort of practice, and it's in the next slide, I think. But God, Yahweh, he's not like these little G gods and idols of these neighbors. And in the second section here, 
He reminds them, God reminds them of his mighty works. But instead of asking for a temple to be built, God, he inverts this and changes the way it works. He initiates. He promises his future blessings. No strings attached. You might call it grace. And then the temple building, it comes right at the end, down the track later on. And here God, he reminds David of his divine initiative, both in the past and in the future. Verse 8. Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. You see, these are all of God's past blessings. And note the emphasis here on I, I did this, I did that, I was with you. See, David's king, but he's just God's servant. It's not that David is impressive or mighty or powerful. God's the one at work. God's the one who initiates, not David. God worked abundantly in David's life. And now, God, now that God set all this straight, he uses all this as a basis to look forward to the future that God is working about. Verse 9, And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will point a place for my people Israel and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I'll give you rest from all your enemies." You see, the future is in God's hands. God will do these things, not David. And look at all of these promises here. God's going to make David's name great. For those of you who know your Bibles, what does that remind you of? It's Genesis 12. God's promise to Abraham. And I will make of you a great nation. And I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. God's going to point a place for his people. This one's from Exodus 15, the song of Moses. Uh, after the Exodus, after they passed the Red Sea, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. And God's going to give them rest and peace. That's from Deuteronomy 12. Moses, he's giving the law in Deuteronomy, and he promises in chapter 12, a time of rest, safety, peace in the promised land. You see, God reminds David and us of his divine initiative, both in the past and also moving forward into the future. You see, God will do his will. God is working his promises out. And while David's idea of building this temple, it's all well and good, the motivation may have even be great, but we and David, we really need to get with God's agenda. We need to align with God's work as he initiates and works out his promises. And God, he doesn't stop there. He's promised a great name, a land and peace. And here as we move on, God continues to give promises to David. And this time, 
It's about how all of this stuff is going to happen. You see, David wanted to build God a house, a temple. But now God, he kind of inverts it, and he promises to build David a house, a dynasty, a family, descendants ruling on God's throne. And we see this in verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Remember Saul's kingship. It ended uh, before any royal succession. There was no dynasty in Saul's kingship. But for David... God promises a succession. His own biological son will rule, descendant after descendant after descendant. Verse 13, He shall build a house for my name, and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God says it's David's son, not David, who will build a house. And it's not for God to dwell, which is what all the other nations did. Their idols, they literally dwelled in their temples, but this house, this temple is for God's name, where people would call out to God to worship him, which is what Solomon does. And God also repeats and expands verse 12. He's going to establish David's kingdom, and now it's forever. Another key word in this chapter, David's dynasty, it's forever. It will never end. You see, death will not destroy David's house, which is the first aspect of God's promise to David here. And the second aspect of God's promise or God's covenant with David is that sin cannot destroy God's house, David's house. Have a look at verse 14. I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity or sin, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the Son of Men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. If you know the books of Samuel, it's a book of failed fathers. Eli, in the beginning of 1 Samuel, uh, the high priest, he raised rebellious kids. Saul, he even tried to kill his own son, Jonathan. Even David himself. You guys should know he was a failed dad to his sons in many different ways. The people of Israel, they were considered sons of God. But God takes it even further here to the king, to David's descendants. God will be a true father to the king. And he, the king, will be God's son. He will love and discipline his son but his steadfast love, his covenant love, will endure forever. You see, God's love and commitment to David's house means that sin cannot destroy David's house. And finally, verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. It's another repeat, David's house, David's kingdom, God's kingdom through his servant David. Time will not exhaust David's kingdom. His term, his dynasty 
will never end. It will keep going and going and going and going and going and going. Well, I don't know about you, but having read uh, this passage, this chapter, these are big words, I think. Huge promises that God is making to David here. That David's house, his rule, his kingdom, it's going to last forever. Death will not destroy it. Sin cannot destroy it. And time will not exhaust it. It's pretty easy, I think, to take these words and this passage for granted. Not to be excited or intrigued by these promises. But if we just think about it for a moment, if we pose the question for a moment, if David's house will last forever, there's only two ways this can happen. The first is a perpetual rule. Like any royal family we see today, descendant after descendant after descendant. Or there's a second way. One son. One promised son. A son who will live and rule forever. And in one sense, if we keep thinking, the Bible is a book of genealogies tracking down the family tree, descendant after descendant after descendant. We look back to Genesis 3, when sin enters the world. God's promises in Genesis 3, verse 15, he promises an offspring, a descendant, a son, who will defeat sin and that sneaky serpent. The rest of Genesis we look on, it tracks this offspring, this son, Seth, Noah, Abraham. And in Genesis 12, God promises Abraham offspring, whose name, their sons, and his name will be great and be a blessing to all. Then it keeps going in Genesis. Isaac, Jacob, on and on and on, tracking the family tree. Now we get to David and God, he promises again, in line with all the previous promises, but expands it even more. Offspring, rule, a kingdom forever. Their name will be great. And now we look forward. From this point, we see Solomon. Everyone thought he was the golden child, God's promised one. He built the temple. He increased Israel's borders. He turned Israel into a world superpower. And then the people thought, those promises, those words to David, it's come. It's here. Kingdom of God is now here. But if we know Solomon's story, that wasn't the case. Solomon sinned. God disciplined him. Solomon died. But God's commitment, his covenant to David's house continued. Even when the kings after Solomon, they were a ratbag bunch. They were normally sinful or terribly sinful. Rehoboam, Abijah, on and on you read one and two kings. Good king, bad king, all sinful kings. But God's commitment, if you read them, to David's house keeps going. It continues even through the exile when Israel and Judah were defeated, 2 Kings 25, God preserved his king. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, 
That's what the chapter says at the end of 2 Kings. He's alive. God's promises about his king are still alive. Even the prophets during the exile, God kept speaking through them, reminding them of his promises, restoring the kingdom, God's king coming into Jerusalem. And there's this expectation when you read the minor prophets, people looking for God's king, waiting for his king, his son, for God to work his promises. And then we turn to the pages of the New Testament. Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Luke 1, 31 to 33, the angel speaking to Mary. And behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Matthew 21, verse 9. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on the donkey. And the people shouted, Hosanna to the Son of of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You see, Jesus is God's promised king. And in Jesus, we see that David's house, it isn't continually descendant after descendant after descendant. It finally comes to one son, Jesus Christ, who fits God's promises perfectly. He is. He really is God's son. He doesn't sin, yet he's disciplined for the sins of the world. And God's steadfast love never leaves Jesus. And God's kingdom really, truly, indeed, lasts forever in Jesus, who died, who rose again, who lives forever, seated right now at the throne of God. Jesus, who announces himself at the end of scripture, in Revelation 22:16, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. You see, Jesus really is God's promised king. In the last eight to 10 months uh, with COVID and recovering from hospital, I've been getting into jigsaw puzzles lately. And while with jigsaw puzzles, it's a lot less effort to just get the finished puzzle without doing any work. There's a sense of joy and appreciation when you put each piece of the puzzle together. And I know most of you this morning, you know that Jesus is God's promised king. But to grapple with this yourself, to see God's word show this, and to mine a key passage like 2 Samuel 7, seeing and putting all the pieces in the puzzle together yourself, I think it gives you, it gives us a greater sense and a deeper sense of understanding, of joy, of appreciation, of seeing Jesus truly as God's promised King. 
And if you're here this morning, if you're skeptical about God's word, you're unsure about why Jesus is the one that we celebrate, I pray that unpacking this chapter today helps you to see all these strings put together, to consider God, to consider Jesus and God's promises that center on him. We've just had Christmas come and go. Feels like last week, but it's not. But one thing that you'll find uh, at Christmas time and Christmas meals, dinners, lunches, celebrations, are Christmas crackers. The ones that you pull, you get some plastic toy, you get some lame dad joke, and a party hat to put on. Personally, I'm not a big fan of Christmas festivities. I'm definitely the Grinch at home. I suck the fun out of Christmas. I hate Christmas crackers. But when we pull them, you hear the big bang, you read the funny joke, you put the party hat on. Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but that party hat, it's a crown. It's a crown that we put on ourselves. But if you really think about it, the crown, in the Christmas story, in the story of God's word, in the story of our lives, it isn't about us. It's supposed to point us to Jesus. The crown is for him and not us. But we seem to crown ourselves king, don't we? Instead of seeing Jesus as the king and crowning him as the king. So if Jesus is really God's promised king, how can we crown Jesus king? How can you crown Jesus king? Today, as we begin this new year, during this COVID season, or whatever's happening in your life right now, how can we crown Jesus King? Well, I have three thoughts as we finish off this morning. First, submit to Jesus the King. The Lord Jesus Christ, he's on the throne he rules from heaven, and one day every enemy will be under his feet, and Jesus will rule all of heaven and earth, and his everlasting kingdom will be established as God's promised king. So bow the knee to Jesus, submit to him, whether it's the first time or the hundredth time. Submit your lives to him. Let him rule, which means saying no to the other things that rule your life. And live his way, which means conforming your life to the lordship of Jesus. It's pretty easy, I think, to forget to submit to Jesus. Especially in the day-to-day -day of our lives, the grind of the day when things are busy, when times are hard, when things are tough when things don't go as planned, especially in this COVID season when nothing's normal and your lives have been turned upside down, we're still called to submit to Jesus the King. Second thing, serve Jesus the King. If Jesus is your King, if you've submitted your life to him, 
He is your ultimate boss. He's your king. He's the one that you lay before. It's his kingdom and his work that deserves our all. Your time, your energy, your possessions, all of you. While the pandemic has hit us worldwide, I actually think there's a second pandemic within our churches during this time. Followers of Jesus aren't serving. They're using COVID as a holiday. Serving Jesus might look different in this season, but we should be, and we should be wise and discerning and cautious about all these things. But even amidst this time and this pandemic and this season, we're still called to serve Jesus nonetheless. So let me ask you this morning, how are you serving King Jesus today? How are you serving King Jesus today? How are you announcing the good news of life in Jesus? How are you building his kingdom? How are you growing his church both locally and globally? Because if you're not doing this, you're probably not serving King Jesus. You're probably serving someone or something else. And a quick word for those who are online this morning. If you're at home and online because you have to be or because you're cautious, you're being cautious, that's great. It's a time to be wise and cautious and discerning. But if you say that you're cautious, but yet you're still going out to the shops, to the cafes, to the beaches, to go on holidays and other things, let me ask you online this morning, are you really being cautious? Or are you really serving King Jesus? All of us, here, online, watching later, followers of Jesus are called to serve Jesus the King. And third and final thing, sit, simply sit under the kingship of Jesus. It's so easy to get caught up in submitting to Jesus and serving King Jesus that we forget to simply sit under the kingship of Jesus to find that joy, that peace, that hope and assurance and confidence knowing that Jesus is king, that Jesus is our king. He's ruling right now on high, that he has the universe and our lives, and everything that's happening in his trustworthy hands. Maybe life feels out of control for you this morning. Well, take heart. Jesus is king. Are you anxious about COVID, mandates, spread, Omicron, vaccines, all of those things? Well, take heart. Jesus is king. Maybe something else this morning. Health, financial difficulties, relationships not going right. Well, take heart. Jesus is king. He's sitting on his throne. He's ruling and reigning. And that should give us peace, hope, assurance, and confidence. I think sometimes we just need to stop. We need to sit and remember that Jesus is indeed king and to let that truth, that reality, shape our hearts, our feelings, and our emotions.
simply to sit under the kingship of Jesus. Well, as we finish off this morning, Jesus really is God's promised king. He's the promised one in 2 Samuel 7. He's the promised one all through God's word. And he calls us to submit to him, to serve him, and to sit under his good and loving kingship. Let's pray to that end. Father God, we are a forgetful people. But your word is abundantly clear that Jesus is your promised king. He's the son of David, the one you promised would establish your eternal kingdom. Lord God, help each of us to crown Jesus as king of our lives, to submit to his rule, to serve his kingdom purposes, and to sit under his good, gracious, and loving kingship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.